Swing and a drive. Right field and deep. Back goes Aquino. It's got a chance. Gone. Get out the tape measure. Long gone. Fly the W. Cubs fans, it's time to fly the W with Dustin Rhodes and Paul Crawley-Jean. Welcome to another edition of the Fly the W670 podcast. I am Dustin Rhodes, executive producer of the Mully and Haw Show. Guys are live 530 to 10 on 670 The Score. Of course, your radio home for Cubs baseball. This is season one. Episode number 33, we're calling this one Sweet Revenge, as I welcome my buddy Crowley into the conversation. Crowley, how the heck are you? I know I'm doing better than Timmy Trumpet, that's for sure. You can follow follow me at Crowley's Cubs, or you can follow us at FlyTheW670 on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us at FlyTheW on Facebook, and FlyTheW670 at gmail.com if you want to drop us a line, that's our email. Segment one, we're calling it the Wrigley Recap. We're going to bring you the scores and news that have happened over the last few days since we last talked to you on the podcast. And first up, Crowley, the Cubs were taking on the Mets in Flushing Meadows, New York, game one. Javier Assad versus Chris Bassett. Yeah, you know, Bassett was 13-7 and this year. He didn't get the headlines, obviously, that DeGrom or Scherzer does, but he's had a good year. And the Cubs counter with Javier Assad and, you know, didn't look good, but, you know, as far as the odds are concerned and Javier Assad, you know, for bottom of the first, the Mets load the bases, but he strikes out Mark Karn to end the threat. Top of the second, Rafael Ortega homers. The Cubs are up one nothing. Top of the third, Zach McKinstry homers and Rebus is along with the, for the ride. The Cubs lead three to nothing. A leadoff walk by Wisdom gets to second on an air, then scores on an Ortega single, and the Cubs are up four nothing. Ortega would come around on a Rivas single. Cubs have a 5-0 lead. So bottom of the fourth, Javier Assad gives up three singles. Um, Mark Karna scores to make it 5-1. Bottom of the sixth, Assad gives up a two-out triple to Eduardo Escobar, poorly played by Ortega, but he gets Tyler Naquin to strike out to end the threat. And in the bottom of the eighth, Mark Leiter gives up a leadoff single. Manrod replaces him. He gives up a single to Alonzo and Vogelbach walks. Bases loaded, no outs. Manrod strikes out Mark Karna. Brandon Hughes comes into the game and gets Ortega to fly out to shallow center and gets pinch hitter Darren Ruff to line out to right. Bases loaded, no outs. Mets do not score. Bottom of the ninth, Lindor does homer, homer, but that's it. The Cubs are going to win this one 5-2. And for Assad, he gave up, went six innings, gave up five hits, one run, three walks, six Ks. Hughes with a five-out save. Offense scored five runs on seven hits, three left on base, two for five with runners in scoring position. McKinstry and Suzuki, two for four. Ortega, two for three. For the Mets, Bassett only went 3.2. He gave up five hits, two runs, two walks, two Ks. Mets had two runs on eight hits, 10 left on base. And one for nine with runners in scoring position. Lindor and Escobar, two for four. But it's what I talked to you about on the last episode, Dustin, is that, you know, when you're in a pennant chase, everything gets amplified, every at bat, every missed opportunity. And, 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 and it's, I said, if I, if they, if Assad could win that first game somehow, all of a sudden it puts a little bit more pressure on the Mets who hear the Braves behind them. Yeah, they were playing awfully tight, Crowley. The other thing I loved about this, this was the second uh, Brandon Hughes um, 
four or five out saves over the last couple of days. So it's interesting to see him do that earlier in the week. I was not too thrilled with him, but as the week has gone on, I've gotten to be a fan of his again as the roller coaster with me and this Cubs bullpen continues. Well, Brandon Hughes has looked, out of all the young bullpen arms, to me he's looked like one of the best, and it's hard to believe that he's a you know, converted outfielder. Uh, just just a, a crazy story, a, one of the really good feel-good stories of the year. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. So, what a great yeah. story. What a great story he is. Yep. You're taking a look then, and, and this is the one we laughed about. You, you know, Adrian Sampson, Mr. <laughs> Number 5 pitcher, versus probably the best pitcher on the planet in Jake DeGrom. And it is a stunner, Dustin, because, you know, when Jacob DeGrom is on the mound, those Mets fans go nuts, every strikeout, every everything. But in the top of the second, Ian Happ puts a monster homer on the second deck, and the Cubs take a one nothing lead. Then in the top of the fourth, Franmil Reyes singles to right, Ian singles to left. Uh, Rafael Ortega, unfortunately, is hurt on a bunt attempt. He gets hit in the hand. He's done for the season. Aramosillo replaces him with two strikes. He gets a sack bunt down, and there's a throwing error by McCann. Everybody's safe. Jan Gomes sack fly makes it 2 nothing. Cubs. Wisdom gets a bunt single of all people. Half scores. <laughs> Cubs up 3 nothing. Top of the seventh, David Bodie solo home run. Cubs up 4 nothing. Bottom of the ninth, Pete Alonzo. The, the Mets were the king of some of these garbage runs at the end. Solo home run. That's it. Cubs 4, Mets 1. Samson, six, point, six innings pitch. Two hits, zero runs, four walks, three Ks. Brandon Hughes, five-out save. Offense, four runs on nine hits, six left on base, two for nine with runners in scoring position. Hap, two for four with the homer, Bodie homers. Mr. Unbeatable, Jake DeGrom, six innings pitch, five hits, three runs, zero walk, 10 Ks. But the Mets' offense had one run on four hits, six left on base, 0 for three with runners in scoring position. Fact, Dustin, this was the biggest upset, if you are a gambler, in baseball in three years. Yeah, I think uh, I think DeGrom was like a minus 295 or maybe even 300 favorite. The other thing, Crowley, that I loved about this game was Adrian Sampson not taking any crap off Pete Alonzo. Um, Pete Alonzo hit a long, 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 long uh, foul ball just left. And then uh, Samson didn't give him anything to hit after that. And he started running his lips, so Samson went right back down his throat. I love that from the kid. Yeah, I showed a little bit of moxie. I mean, you're, you're, you're playing on the big stage in New York, and, and again, this, this Mets crowd was fired up. But again, it, it, it's, I loved it. I love being on the other side of it. It feels so much better than being on the so wrong much side better. of it. <laughs> it feels so much better, Crowley. Getting to be the spoilers. So, so game number three, last night, Wednesday night, Drew Smiley, David Peterson. This is the game I felt confident about. Remember I said the Cubs yep. won for three. This is the one I said, yep. Drew Smiley versus TBD. Drew Smiley's been doing great. And sure enough, David Peterson comes out for the Mets. He walks the first three batters, loads the bases. Wisdom strikes out, but then Gomes, Higgins, and Aramosillo all double. Nelson Velasquez adds a single just for fun. And the Cubs are up 6 nothing before Smiley's even thrown a pitch. Unbelievable. Absolutely. Un- I could not believe the first three guys back and Crowley. They they all walked with two strike counts. It, it is absolutely. It was just, again, the pressure. It's it's a different ball game, man. And the bottom of the third, Thomas Nito homers off Drew Smiley. Cubs lead 6-1. They score an unearned run in the bottom of the fifth. Brandon Nimmo reached on an air by wisdom, and, it's, and Eduardo Escobar scores. So, uh 
the the uh, Cubs are up six two, and then Pete Alonso in the bottom of the eighth decided to add another one, so that'll make it six three. I wanted your opinion on this, Dustin, because ninth inning of the game yesterday, mm-hmm. Seiya Suzuki is hit in the hand by former Cub of all people, Michael Givens, who they traded the trade deadline. But in the bottom of the ninth, Mark Leiter comes into the game. Okay, it's a six-three game, so it's not you know that out of hand. He hits Jeff McNeil with a pitch, and Eduardo Escobar drills one that Miguel Hermosillo, Michael Hermosillo, who's back, makes a great catch, saving extra bases. Smart move, though. Well, I think it's fine because at this point, it kind of goes back to what I said about game number two, right? Adrian Sampson not taking any crap off no one. Listen, I mean, was it smart that they hit Say in the hand? If that's what they were trying to do, were they so ticked off and so upset that they decided to hit him in the hand? So don't take no crap off no one. I'm fine with it. I am absolutely positively fine with it. You, obviously you're not. I just, uh, boy, you know, I, 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 it's, I, I get it. I get, I get the purpose of it. I don't know if giving, I don't know if hitting say it was on purpose or not. I, it was, you know, it, and I don't know. I'm, I'm trying. I was just so excited to see if they could possibly sweep. I was so jacked up, and I'm like, oh man, if you let these guys come back, you just don't want to let them have. You don't you know? Don't poke the bear. You know what I mean? You are putting a whooping on them. Don't do anything to give them any kind of energy. I know it doesn't mean anything or it doesn't matter. If I thought it was intentional on Saya, I would have been all for it. I didn't think it was. Um, so that's kind of where I land on it. All right. I get it. I see both sides of it. No doubt about that. But all I got to say, Dustin, is Smiley again. He, you know, not, not as great as his other starts. Five innings pitched. So, you know, he was up to about 70-something pitches. I, I was kind of surprised about that. Five innings pitched, four hits, two runs, one earned, one walk, five Ks. The offense had six runs on only seven hits. They went four for nine with runners in scoring position, and most of that damage happened in the first inning. Higgins two for three, Velasquez two for four. But absolutely, all I could think about this entire time was sweet revenge. Absolutely Mets, 1969. Sweet revenge. 1969, Cubs blew an eight-game lead on August the 19th. They lost the division by eight games. That's a 16-game swing, Dustin. 2004, the Cubs are playing the, 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 the pitiful Mets right after they just took uh, three from Pittsburgh, and they absolute, they had a one-and-a-half game lead in the wild card, and they ended up blowing the next two games. And then in 2015, my beloved Cubs, when they were finally starting to break through, and the Mets sweep them with Daniel Murphy going off and uh, four games and ending the Cubs' magical 2015 season. And more than anything, and what about Ron Santos' toupee, damaging Ron Santos' toupee? <laughs> it got burned in that damn shape. Yeah, it's stadium. on fire. Yeah, it's on fire. <laughs> but I will tell you this, Dustin. The thing that really chips my hide, because it, it's fresh, is they thought that they were just going to screw the Cubs in the 2020 trade deadline deal. Everybody knew that the Padres and the Mets were the best lined up suitors for a big trade. When I'm talking big trade, I'm talking David Robertson in the bullpen, I'm talking Wilson Contreras, and I'm talking Ian Happ. And the Mets didn't want to do it because of what happened last year with the Javier Baez for and, uh, and Trevor Williams for PCA. And you know what? When you are a team in first place and you don't go for it, what does that tell your team? Are you happy now that you got Darren Ruff instead of Ian Happ? Darren Ruff, who's not even hitting his weight? Congratulations. Great move on that one, Mets. So you know what? You screwed the Cubs, but you also screwed yourself. Screwed so now yourselves, you, you, yeah. You, you reap what you sow. You reap yeah. what you sow, New York. 
Yeah, sweet revenge. You're, it's exactly right, Crowley. Sweet revenge. So, I don't know, Crowley, am I a bad Cubs fan when I said that the Mets were going to sweep the Cubs? You called one out of three. You were absolutely right about the game that you felt most confident in, but I called for the sweep of the Cubs by the Mets, and it actually went the other way, and it absolutely floored me. Yeah, they're the only team that swept the Mets this whole season. And Unbelievable. So, Unbelievable. <laughs> Again, though, you know, I brought up the 2004 Cubs and I distinctly all of a sudden remember Latroy Hawkins just, you know, giving up long balls and you just Kent Merker was another one that just absolutely it's just different, man. When all of a sudden I was looking, I went and I looked back to some of those 2004 box scores and the Cubs had such an easy walk. And and when they lost those two out of three against the Mets, the next series was against the lowly Cincinnati Reds. They lost three out of four there. And I think they lost two out of three versus the um versus the Braves to end the 2004 season, and that's it, man. So, you know, we've all been there. We've all seen our teams go through it when all of a sudden you get tight and it falls apart, and that's, you know, luckily for the Mets, the Braves all of a sudden went from hot to not. So the Cubs gave this to the the Braves on a platter, and the Braves really couldn't take advantage of it. But the Mets have really got to be reeling right now. Man, Mets only a half game in front of the Braves right now over in the NL East. Obviously, the Cubs, Crowley, aren't going to the postseason this year at the big league level, but minor league playoffs are underway, both Myrtle Beach and South Bend in those postseasons. And, and anyone that's listened to Fly the WB podcast, you know that we've had um, tons of guys, the, both the announcers from Myrtle Beach and South Bend. We've had tons of players, some that went started Myrtle Beach and ended up in South Bend, some that are still in Myrtle Beach, and some that are now in South Bend, that were in South Bend all year. And these are two phenomenal teams that if you have the opportunity, you can go online and watch these and stream these. Um, Myrtle Beach, unfortunately, did not win their first game, so they're down right now 1-0. But the South Bend Cubs, they were down 1-0. They had their best pitcher in Devers, Luis Devers, pitching. And, you know, they gave up a first run. He gave up a first run home run and then no scoring till the bottom of the eighth. And they make a comeback and they win 2-1. It was just, just like that within six outs, you know, with, you know, three outs left, but like, you know, you're in the bottom of the eighth, you only have to get six more outs. And just like that, they hit, they get two runs. And then in the top, they, the, the relievers close it out. And next thing you know, the, the South Bend's up one nothing. So it's a team that does not quit. Report from Buster Olney on the four letter network. And uh, he's reporting that the Cubs might indeed keep Wilson Contreras around. The other report on the Wilson Contreras front is he might be activated tomorrow when the, uh, Cubs welcome in the Rockies. Yeah, he's had that ankle injury. I mean, I was shocked. I was at the Field of Dreams games where, where he kind of twisted it. I couldn't believe he still played the game, and it clearly was bothering him, so he's had some time off. But uh, the article by Buster Olney um, is something that we've talked about because of the qualifying offer. This was something that they tried negotiating past after they redid the CBA. There was a deadline um, in, involving the international free agency, and the qualifying offer was part of that, and um, the qualif- they didn't come to an agreement, so the qualifying offer stands. So what happens then is that if the Cubs um, put an offer to Wilson, and it doesn't have to be a great offer, then all of a sudden the, any team that signs him would have to give the Cubs a draft pick back. And so at that point, you're not just signing Wilson for pure money. You, you know, you're going to have to give the, up, a, up a draft pick on that. And so that may hurt Wilson in free agency, So the Cubs, it puts them in a position where they may be able to get Wilson for a much better than market value deal on him. 
Absolutely. Well, fingers crossed. I'd like to have him back. I'd hate to have his last memories be this one as a Chicago Cub. How about uh, David Kaplan, who's all over this rumor about Trey Turner and Carlos Rodon, supposedly both guys want to be Cubs? We've talked about Rodon, and, and Rodon likes Chicago, and, and Dustin, you and I are kind of you know a little nervous just based on the injury history. But Trey Turner is a guy that absolutely excites me because of what he can do. I mean, he, he just like he's the definition of a five-tool player, man. He can just do everything. Uh, you know, speedy guy at the top of the lineup. Um, you you know, he he doesn't have a ton of pop, but you know, he can still hit him out. Uh, great defense. I mean, he may be. Uh, you know, when you talk about Bogarts and you talk about you know. Uh, some uh, Devers and a couple other guys, you know, he's the one that really kind of excites me the most personally. The only thing, my only hesitation with him is the lack of pop. I, I, I know the Cubs want to get more balls up in the air and get more balls out of Wrigley Field. So I think if you're going to focus in on one offensive player in the offseason, they need to bring a little bit of pop with them because there's enough guys on this team that will be part of the team next year that don't offer enough pop. So a couple things to kind of think about here, and that has to do with kind of the new rule changes. When you have the new rule changes, right, it, it may expose certain guys as being not as good defensively, okay? So right now, you can be a mediocre defender, and if you get positioned right and you're in the shifts right and you got a good analytics department, well, then you're, you, you can kind of cover some of that up. If the rules now say you have to stay two, two infielders on each side of the bag, well, it may show some guys that are not as good defensively. I'm, I'm kind of looking specifically at uh, Nick Magical, you know, as a guy that, no, I'm, I'm being in all, in all honesty, I, I, I wonder if some of these guys have benefited from not having to make, and, and this is part of the reason they're doing this uh, no shift, is they want to see more athletic plays and more balls in play. Right. And so, you know, if you're telling me you can put uh, Trey Turner at short and then Nico at second, that interests me. The other thing to keep in mind with the new rule bases, two inches on each base added. So an extra four inches. You got a guy like Trey Turner and he can all of a sudden take off. That's why, you know, the question is how much pop can Nico add to his game? Right. Um, and another question that you ask is, is, is right now the Cubs have one of the hottest hitters in all the minor leagues. He's going for the home run title potentially in Matt Mervis. And so Matt Mervis right now is sitting at AAA. He's with the Iowa Cubs. And, you know, if he's a guy that does, it's, it's really hard to put that on a rookie. I 100% get that. And I hope that Fran Mil Reyes can kind of come back next year and do something. Um, if you have Wilson Contreras still, uh, you know, like we talked about, that's some pop right there. And so, you know, and even if you keep Patrick Wisdom at third, that's some pop right there. Do you think Matt Mervis, Crowley, could Matt Mervis be the opening day first baseman next year for the Cubs? You know what? Go ahead and doubt Matt Mervis at your own risk. All he's done is prove everybody that he, he absolutely has belonged. He's dominated at every level of the minor league ball that he's at. So, I mean, like I said, it's hard. You know, if you're going to tell me he's batting three or four, I would be nervous. But if you tell me you got, uh, you got Matt Mervis batting five or six, uh, I'm kind of more interested in that, you know, if you got Wilson at third and then you got um, Reyes at fourth and then maybe, you know, Wisdom at five, Mervis at six. I think that you have a lot of mash potential right there. 
You're listening to Season 1, Episode 33. We're calling this one Sweet Revenge, and this is the Fly the W 670 podcast. And right now we're going to interview the Cubs VP of Scouting, Dan Kantrovitz. Joining me now on the Fly the W podcast, I am with the Cubs VP of Scouting, Dan Kantrovitz. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm, I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you on, and uh, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about what your role of the Cubs VIP of scouting entails. Like, what are some of the responsibilities? Yeah, so I think on a just a real basic level, my job is to is to run our draft. Um, you know, and that's three days uh, in July each year, where you know we're selecting uh, you know roughly twenty um, high school or college or uh, or junior college players. Uh, you know, from a pool of probably starting with roughly, you know, call it a thousand players on our on our board, and you know, then we narrow it down to see who's still there at our pick, and uh, you know, we go through that process twenty times. There's twenty rounds, and um, and try to end up with the the, the best collection of a uh, of, of future Cubs. And then, uh, sorry, no, go ahead. And so, you know, that's you know, nowadays that's kind of a 365 day year process where. You know, we've got 30 scouts uh, out in the field, you know, whether they're area scouts and cover a certain area, whether they're, you know, regional cross checkers and oversee a few of those area scouts or whether then there's national cross checkers and then cover the entire country. Um, but, you know, that process of trying to identify who those, you know, 1,000 players on our draft board might be is uh, kind of a, a year-round process and uh, it involves a lot of different things as far as evaluating the players' talent on the field, trying to get a feel for what makes them tick, what motivates them. We call that their makeup. Um, and then, you know, trying to integrate all that information and those opinions with, you know, some of the great work that our people in the office do on the research and development side, um, collaborate quite a bit with, you know, people on the player development side, whether that's uh, in our hitting group or our pitching group, um, and obviously with, uh, you know, the, the leadership group in Chicago. So, uh, but all of it's geared towards and, and focus on those uh, those three days in July where we're trying to figure out the you know the, the best uh, uh, who are going to be future Cubs one day. Now you were hired in the fall of 2019, but you got previous experience with the Cardinals and the Oakland A's. You ran some drafts for those guys, and those two teams they just they're legendary for being able to find the best you know, players in the draft, guys that nobody even hears of. And all of a sudden you're like, where did, where did the Cardinals get these guys? Or Oakland, obviously another classic. What did you take uh, from your time in the, those organizations that you've applied to your work with the Cubs? Yeah. So, you know, dating back to St. Louis when I started in 2000, late 2004, uh, you know, I, I really just kind of cut my teeth immediately in amateur scouting. Um, you know, the people I was working for were responsible for our draft, had a similar role to, to mine now, um, and was just thrown in the fire immediately and, uh, you know, was writing a couple hundred scouting reports every year, was working with our analysts and, um, you know, really getting sort of a bird's eye view of, um, you know, what uh, Major League Baseball team does in scouting and then sort of where things were going in terms of, you know, getting more information, more data. Um, and, you know, I did that for about five or six years. Um, and then, like you said, uh, worked for the Oakland A's, actually was in charge of their international scouting group, um, which might have been, uh, in, in my opinion, some of the, the best training you can have as a scout because you're going down there and just getting sort of a, a pure, unadulterated look at, um, 
you know, uh, at 16 year olds where, you know, at the time we didn't even have a lot of the, the tracking data that, you know, guys have now to, to help in their evaluations. And so you really just have to put a dollar sign on the muscle when it, when it comes to that and try to figure out how much this player is worth, how good they are, how good they are now, how much improvement they have in the, in the future. And, and then I ended up doing that for, um, for about three years. Uh, and then like you alluded to, um, ran a few of the Cardinals drafts from 2012 to 2014. Uh, and then when I was in Oakland, um, I actually wasn't as involved in our sort of day-to-day draft process as more on the major league uh, side in terms of, you know, running our um, sort of R&D department, uh, the statistical analysis to identify trade candidates, free agents, uh, player evaluation. So really have the full spectrum of, uh, you know, over the last uh, almost 20 years of, evaluating, you know, whether it's a 16 year old in the Dominican Republic, um, whether it's a 18 year old or 22 year old for the draft, or whether it's a, you know, 30 year old free agent and just trying to figure out how to value those players. Um, and then sort of where they could fit in on the, you know, either the, the minor league or the major league side. Now you get into the Cubs as a VP of scouting and, and your first draft is 2020, which presented a whole bunch of unique challenges. How, how did you adapt to those challenges and what did you have to overcome in that unique draft? Yeah. So, you know, I think in, in my situation in particular, um, you know, coming from Oakland where my job was primarily focused on, you know, major league player acquisition and, and, and statistical analysis and, and uh, not so much on the amateur side uh, and then coming in and just, you know, really just having to familiarize myself with the amateur pool of players, one, and then two, uh, our scouts um, and then I think, you know, there were universal challenges that weren't just specific to me uh, when, you know, the, the pandemic struck and every team had to try to, you know, make these decisions based on imperfect information. Uh, and I think that's always our, our job and our challenge is to, you know, try to draft players based on, you know, imperfect information, even when it's a, you know, a, a full season and when it's not truncated. But uh, in, in, in 2020, I think... Um, you know, we just had to do, you know, like everybody else, you know, the best we could um, and, and make certain concessions during the draft. I mean, um, you know, not we weren't going to have everybody see all the players. And in my case, I wasn't going to be able to see all of them. And, you know, we're going to draft players that, uh, um, you know, going into it that we wish we probably would have had a little bit more information on in, in, in retrospect. Um, but I think everybody was in the same boat and, you know, it probably uh, increased the, the variation in terms of the outcomes of, you know, whether this player, you know, how this player is going to do. Um, and, you know, I think we viewed it as a, a unique opportunity to, to potentially take some more risks, risks than we otherwise would have, um, you know, because we we're taking a big risk regardless. Um, you know, but that said, they, I think they were, um, you know, looking back on it. Uh, you know, we tried to leverage as many of the resources that we had in, you know, in our research development group in terms from a data standpoint. Um, you know, we spent months and months uh, interviewing these players on Zoom. And, you know, that's a process that's stayed with us, you know, today that, you know, we've kind of taken from that, um, you know, one of the positives. But, um, yeah, it was, no doubt it was challenging. And it was, you know, I've never envisioned having, you know, running a draft in that way, seeing basically in a you know, conference room by myself in, in Arizona with, you know, Jed and Theo on, on one Zoom, you know, when they're at their homes and then, you know, our scouts and in, in, in different, you know, rooms on Zoom and, you know, for wherever they happen to be based. It was just a, a really unique set of circumstances. And, um, you know, I don't think uh, I don't think looking back on any draft, it's ever going to be, um, you know, perfect or sort of unfold exactly the way that you 
that you want it to. And um, but it's it's nice to see some uh, some some of those players starting to have some success. You know, whether it's the you know the Luke Littles of the world or the you know the Wogus that are you know really starting to turn it on this year. And you know the the amount of time we spent on the undrafted pool. You know, whether it's like the Mervises or the Leapers, and you know, there's there's a few others. Um, you know, is, is starting to pay some dividends too. So you know, we're we're really proud about that. And when you talk about that undrafted pool, I mean, that just blew up when when they like cut the number of rounds in the draft. I mean, so now there's all sorts of opportunities to get guys like you said, like Matt Mervis, and 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 you know, from a lot of interviews that I've read, a lot of these guys have chips on their shoulders because they think, hey, I should have been drafted, and and they feel like they got something a little extra to prove. Yeah, I you know I think. There was a few different processes to that undrafted piece. One was, you know, the evaluation component. And, and you know, that comes down to, you know, our scouts on the amateur side saying, you know, I, I like this player, which, you know, in the case of like Mervis, you know, Billy Swope did an excellent job, you know, just as he always does and always has done of, you know, pound the table saying, you know, I believe in this guy. Um, and then, you know, there was that recruiting piece of it too, which, you know, we tapped into, you know, everybody in the organization, whether it was, you know, Stony on the hitting side to, to show a guy like Matt, you know, how we could, uh, you know, just to nurture his swing and, and, and help his progress and development, whether that was, you know, Rossi giving him a call and, you know, just giving him a little taste of the Cubs culture so that, you know, it might be something that he would be attracted to. But, um, you know, it was, uh, th- those were guys, like you said, you know, I don't know if I would say it as, as having a chip on their shoulder, but I, I, you know, they were, a few of them had a lot of confidence that, you know, they should have been drafted. Um, and so to, you know, talk to a player when they feel like they should have been drafted and say, well, you know, um, now we're going to offer you X, which, you know, was maybe the maximum amount allowable under the, the rules for a non-drafted free agent was, was not really what some of those guys were, you know, were, were hoping that to, to get. And I remember in the case of, of Matt, um, you know, just a, a, a funny anecdote is, you know, we're trying to pitch him on the opportunity and, um, you know, he's going down our, our depth chart and, you know, I remember him like stopping at like uh, at, at Rizzo and thinking, you know, that, that, and he said this and he said, well, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I think that could be an impediment to sort of my progress to, to get to, to Wrigley Field as quick as I want to. And I'm thinking to myself, goodness, this guy's got quite a bit of confidence here that, uh, you know, he's, he's already thinking he's blocked by our, you know, incumbent uh, all-star first baseman. Uh, but it speaks to, um, you know, the confidence that, that he, he had and, and, and has now. And I think it's part of one of the things that just fuels him and allows him to, you know, have the success that, that he's, he's had. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome to see. In a way you almost like to see that confidence from a player, that hunger from a player that, Hey, I'm going to get there and I'm going to be something, you know? No doubt. I mean, these guys, uh, you know, any drafted player, any player in major league baseball in, in professional baseball, it's, uh, you know, the odds are against you. And then you factor in that you're an undrafted free agent and you you might have to really work to get that playing time, you know, the, those opportunities. And, um, and then, you know, factor in that, you know, the minor leagues were, um, you know, restructured quite a bit. And so the opportunities were even fewer, uh, you know, going forward. And so I think um, you, you certainly have to have, and that's one of the things we look for in these player interviews pre-draft when we're trying to, you know, sit down and get to know the player and their families, you, you have to have that confidence. And, um, and sometimes even an overconfidence isn't, isn't, isn't a bad thing. Well, that first draft that you had, I mean, some, like you said, some of the names that came out of there, Ed Howard, I got a chance to see him, unfortunately, before he got injured, but he was just looking so good. And we knew him from Jackie Robinson West days, Burl Caraway, Jordan Nuagu, who I also got to see at South Bend, Luke Little, who I saw in Arizona. 
I mean, uh, Luke Little, what, what a name for that guy. You know what I mean? He's <laughs> just a monster and uh, it's just exciting. And then 2021, a little bit normal. You get, you get the 20 rounds as opposed to five and you just, you get some good picks there. Jordan Wicks and James Triantos, and Drew Gray and Christian Franklin. A lot of these guys, I find it interesting that it seems to me like, you know, I think of a lot about the last time the Cubs had a really good farm system and everybody seemed to be about the same age and come up at the same time. Whereas this time around, it seems to me like you have a lot of different age groups. There's, there's, you know, everybody, you know, kids that are, you know, like Christian Hernandez. I saw him in, in Arizona. I'm like, oh my God, this guy looks so young. And then you have some other guys that are, you know, college grads and stuff like that. So do you think about that when you're going through the draft about kind of having a little bit of diversity in age groups as well? Yeah, I mean, not so much, you know, and I think that's probably something that would be um, along the lines of something Jed and Carter might, you know, think about when they're looking at the big picture holistically of, you know, sort of our player acquisition apparatus. And, you know, the drafts is just one of those places, one of those uh, ways to, to get players. And, and so I think, um, you know, we try not to look at it so much in the sense of like having a diverse portfolio, but I think at the end of the day, you, you, you know, you you walk out of there feeling a little bit better about it. If you have, you know, a few players that are you know, on the younger side, a few players that are on the older side, um, you know, because you know that there's just a, a natural attrition where, and, and some players are going to get injured. And um, in some cases that's a, you know, a year long recovery. So if you have a laddered sort of approach to that, um, you know, I think as an organization that probably is a, you're probably in a little bit better spot, but um you know, I think some of that just takes care of itself naturally as well. You know, we have a, you know, international group that does a phenomenal job, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, Louis or Alex or, you know, their, their entire staff. And so, you know, just the, the nature of their work brings in usually a, a younger group, um, you know, because they can sign players when they're, um, you know, 16. So if you, you know, have a wave of those players, have a wave of players, you know, that, that we can source from the draft, um, you know, from 18 to 22 and, um, you know, then, you know, the, the, the pro group, uh, you know, contributes with, uh, you know, their minor league free agents and, and, and major league free agents. And so, yeah, I think it tends to take care of itself naturally. And, and it, it probably is not something that we, we want to force, but, um, if you, if you just, if you ignore it, then that's probably not a good thing either. Cause then you end up having a, um, you know, not sort of that wave, um, and, and probably not the depth that you want. Now, 2022, most people were thinking on the draft that they were going to, you know, lean more heavily on hitters, but you guys kind of took 16 out of 20 picks were uh, pitchers. Was that a strategy going into the draft or you guys kind of playing the board as it kind of fell to you or what was going on through this draft this year? Yeah, I think going in, um, you know, we had had talks about, you know, where there's opportunities, where we're, you know, where we're light. It's no secret that um, you know, pitching is a pretty viable currency, you know, in, in, in the game and that, um, you know, and that we've been, you know, as an organization building up those, uh, you know, those reserves over the years and, you know, probably still need to. Um, so leaning sort of on the pitching, you know, side of the spectrum was, was, was absolutely part of the strategy. Um, I didn't imagine that we'd probably come out of it um, with, with that many pitchers. Um, and that just was a function of sort of who we like best at, at, at each pick. Um, but I think, you know, it, there's also different stages of the draft. And I think the way that it's broken out, you know, in the three days gives you sort of a, a glimpse of at least how, how I like to look at it. And it's, you know, the, you know, the first pick or two, which is day one, um, you know, that's, that's an area where you try not to, 
let need factor into it. Um, but you also know that, you know, if you're looking for a top of the rotation arm, um, you know, that that's one of the few places where you might be able to get it. And, um, you know, then you go into day two, which is sort of that depth range, which is, you know, typically the like around the se second round to the 10th round um, or third round to the 10th round. And, um, you know, that that's an area where I think you want to make sure that you're trying to just let the draft you know, play itself out and not force anything and, 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 and take who, you know, you think is the best player on the board regardless of position. Um, but, you know, as it turned out, and maybe this was uh, a function of just the draft pool um, or maybe just our scouts preferences this year, we, we, we took a lot of, you know, pitchers obviously on day two, then day three is a, a lot different in the sense that, um, you know, cause the signing bonuses are steadily decreasing, um, you know, from the first pick to the last pick. And um, so when you get to day three after the 10th round, you know, you're typically play, paying players a little bit less, in some cases a lot less, um, and you want to make sure that you have spots for them to play. And so if you're, you know, taking a hitter, a shortstop, and you know that your depth chart in Myrtle has, you know, three shortstops that are going to get at bats already, um, it, it could be hard to, you know, for that player to, to, to get any playing time. Um, and so that could be a case where then maybe you pivot to sort of that, that pitcher or a little bit, you know, less uh, firm on kind of that starter versus reliever, you know, dynamic. And um, so, you know, there, but I do think there's those three distinct stages um, and you tend to look at how you're picking differently within each stage. Now, speaking of pitchers, uh, the, my, the group Cub fans in Oklahoma would be mad if I didn't mention Cade Horton. So, so talk to the, talk to the listeners here about what you saw when you guys saw Cade Horton and why you were excited to take him in round one. Yeah, it, it, it's it's when I called Cade after the draft, uh, the first thing I asked him and, and I expected him to say no was, you know, do you remember when Ty and I came and uh, sat down in your house in high school? Um, and it was, you know, pre-pandemic. It was probably, you know, February, March of 2020. Um, and he, he said, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think it's from that point on that, you know, we've had quite a bit of interest in him. He's, you know, he was a pretty stud athlete coming out of high school. You know, he was not just a two-way guy and on the baseball field, but, you know, a quarterback, uh, a pretty accomplished one, uh, I think had options at Oklahoma to do that. Um, and then uh, ended up, you know, just sort of uh, sticking with baseball. And, uh, you know, he was actually getting some time at third base on their team this year before he, you know, kind of got back on the mound. Um, but, you know, a lot of the credit goes to our area scout, Ty Nichols, who, um, you know, never lost his conviction on, 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 on Cade and, um, you know, was – really quick to just say, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is first round stuff coming out of his arm. Um, and, you know, gave us enough time to sort of circle wagons and, uh, you know, get some of our senior evaluators in there. And, you know, there was a little bit of a time crunch there at the end where, you know, we had to, uh, you know, sort of keep up with, uh, um, you know, the, the major league baseball combine while at the same time trying to, you know, get some last looks at Cade in the college world series. Um, but it all sort of, you know, every arrow, every data point, you know, both from our scouts as well as, uh, you know, when we talked about him with, you know, our, our, our pitching experts in player development, um, you know, as well as some of our data gurus and research and development, um, you know, as well as Jed and Carter. I mean, every kind of arrow pointed towards, you know, uh, Cade being uh, somebody that we, you know, really want to seriously consider it, you know, with our first pick. Um, you know, I don't think up until probably the day of, um, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't know that it would be a, a you know, how, how likely he, he would be, uh, you know, to be our first pick. And, you know, there was some rumblings that he might not get to our first pick. And then, you know, we had some information that, 
um, you know, afterwards. And, you know, that I think, uh, um, you know, there was quite a few, quite a bit of action on them right behind us too. Um, so you just never know how those things are going to play out, but it was, uh, it was, it was a fun series of events. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, and we're pretty happy that he ended up being our guy. Now, not only did you get Kate Horton, but you also got left-hander in the second round, Jackson Ferris, that some people might think is the steal of the draft. And he comes from IMG Academy, which is where you also guys also got Drew Gray and other players. What is it about IMG Academy that's, that's pumping out these great baseball players? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a good question. I, you know, they, they have great facilities there. I think they, you know, they play like a national schedule. Um, you know, I think a lot of kids changed their and families just changed their expectations, change, sort of changed their sights on what they want out of, uh, you know, secondary education in terms of uh, high school, especially if they're, um, you know, a devoted athlete and, and have aspirations of being a professional. And, you know, I think IMG caters to just, a, you know, a certain crowd, a certain group of sort of those elite athletes that, um, you know, do want to, you know, prioritize both schooling, but also know that, you know, they want to, um, you know, have the resources right away and not wait to college to sort of have that Olympic size weight room, to have that national schedule, to occasionally be on TV, to uh, just sort of get all the resources as quick as they can. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, the, those, that group has in common, at least those that we've spoken with. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's when you sit down with Jackson, I mean, he's a, he's a serious focused kid and he, it, it just comes out that, you know, it's like uh, his goal was to play pro baseball coming out of high school. And I think he viewed IMG as, you know, the, the right mechanism or the right venue to, to help him get there. Um, but he's somebody, and, you know, looking back on just the process and all the conversations and texts and phone calls, you know, about these players all year long, um, you know, I think, uh, I don't know when exactly it was, but I, I remember talking to Jed early in the spring after, a, you know, um, a few of us had seen Jackson a couple times uh, and just saying, you know, this guy's, probably going to be in the mix for us with our first pick. Um, and, you know, that was echoed by then all the subsequent reports and scouts that went in there to see him. And um, he, we viewed him as, as, as that kind of talent. And, you know, I think the way that the draft worked out and, and kind of the communication that we had with him and his agents, um, you know, during, um, you know, enabled that to happen. And, and, and we couldn't be more thrilled because we do – you know, think that he's uh, he's a first round caliber pick, and that you know between Jackson and Cade, that we got two first round arms. The one guy that really interests me is your fourth round pick, Nasir Mule. Tell me a little about this kid. That's some about his personality. I don't know. It just kind of comes through and kind of kind of screams star. Like you know, when we talked about that confidence piece, some about him. I don't know what it was. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, I think you know our our area's got John Pedrotti. Um, was on him from the, you know, the beginning of the spring and, you know, from the summer when we had, when we were seeing him throw hundred miles an hour at some of these showcases and then also seeing him, uh, you know, make some good plays at short and hit the ball as hard as anybody else. And so he was like, he was solidly on our radar going into the spring, but being in New Jersey, um, you know, you don't often get the, you don't have that uh, runway in terms of just the weather it doesn't allow you to, you know, play the schedule that, you know, some of his peers could in Florida. So, um, you know, to, to John's credit and a few of our other scouts that got in there, um, you know, they, they saw him quite a bit. And I think he only pitched, you know, 12 or 13 official high school innings this year. Um, and, and I want to say we saw the vast majority of, if not all of those, um, as, you know, as a scouting group. And then, um, you know, that put us in position, you know, once he decided to, you know, rest his arm the rest of the way um, to, you know, feel comfortable about taking him where we did. 
um, you know, that combined with some of our looks fr from the summer. But uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, staying down with him at the combine, um, he's he's not like any other 17 year old kid I've, I've sat down with and, and, and talked to. I mean, it was just an era of confidence, but also humility, um, acknowledgement that, you know, sort of he's got some, you know, pretty special God given tools. Um, but they, you know, he's also going to have to work and, uh, and, and challenge himself and that, you know, he's, he's looking forward to that. And, uh, I think from a maturity standpoint, um, we were impressed and, 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 and don't have any concerns there. And, um, you know, he's, he's a, he's a special athlete and he's got some special skills and he's, I think going to be a pretty fun one to follow over the next few years. Yeah, he, he's my guy right now. Now, one, one, one guy I want to do ask you about, and again, as Cub fans, we kind of get goofy sometimes, but everyone kind of laughed a little bit in the eighth round when Mason McGuire's name gets called. Obviously, we remember the home run chase in 1998. You know, how interesting is it to talk to some of these um, players that who have parents that played, you know, in the major leagues? Um, I mean, a lot of these guys, and I've talked to, like when I talked to Cole Franklin and his uncle Ryan and stuff like that, these are guys that have kind of been around baseball their whole lives and been around stadiums and met some of these players. What, what was, was there something different when you talk to these type of guys that you kind of tend to notice? Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting you say that because I feel like this year in particular, there, there were so many players that were related to, you know, sort of a, somebody that we grew up, you know, watching on TV or, um, you know, I remember maybe one of the first games I went to this spring, you know, I'm walking out with our scouts and, um, you know, Manny Ramirez sort of is, is down the line watching his son play. And, uh, I mean, there, there, you know, in, there were just countless examples of that this spring where it's like these guys that, you know, we grew up, uh, you know, idolizing and, uh, you know, just, you know, having posters of them on their, you know, on our walls as kids, uh, you know, that we're now running into them and, um, you know, having these like normal business like conversations with them. And sometimes you just kind of have to, you know, you know, pinch yourself. That's like, well, just, you know, keep this in perspective. We're still trying to draft the best players out here, but that was kind of fun. Um, but, you know, in the case of Mason, um, you know, we, Mason was on the circuit all summer with, you know, the, the other, um, you know, top high school players. And so we, you know, we had a chance to thoroughly evaluate him and, 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 you know, at that point, and then being in Southern California, um, you know, he's, they're playing all year round. So there, there's no real, uh, there's no real concern in terms of us not getting enough looks. And then Evan Kaufman, our area scout, um, you know, was on top of it from the beginning. And, you know, Evan and I went in to um, meet with Mason and, and his family and, uh, you know, before season started and just got a really good impression of sort of what, you know, how focused Mason is, what he's trying to do, where he's, you know, how he's gotten to the point where, where he is and, and then, you know, his, his plan for getting to uh, eventually the major leagues. And, um, you know, we were just impressed with his progress all spring. And not to mention, you know, he's got sort of a prototypical, um, you know, just beautiful pitcher's frame that, you know, is, is just sort of ripe to add more, uh, more good weight. And, you know, hopefully which will increase his fastball velocity a little bit more, enable that splitter to, um, you know, fall off the table even more. And, 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 and just, uh, you know, we, we really, really like the ingredients there and, um, you know, I think, uh, he's somebody that we would have been in on, you know, whether or not Mark was his dad. Um, but obviously it's a pretty neat story and, and neat situation, you know, given his, his, his family background. But, uh, um, you know, I told Mason right after the draft, it's, you know, we drafted you for, you know, because of you, not, you know, because of the name on the back of your Jersey. And, um, you know, I think you really appreciate hearing that. Yeah. And, and, and I just, like I said, the only thing that makes me giggle is the idea of one day, Mark McGuire in Wrigley Field to see his son play wearing a Cubs jersey. 
Cubs head, that would be a little bit ironic. But Dan, I really appreciate your time today. Um, thank you for coming on and kind of giving us a little bit of background about these drafts. And we would love to have you back on again sometime to kind of keep teaching us more and more about what you do and what goes on in the business of the draft. It's my pleasure. Happy to come on anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. And we'll talk to you later, Dan. Okay. Sounds good. Bye. You're listening to the Fly the W670 podcast with Dustin Rhodes and my buddy Crowley. This is season one, episode number 33. We're calling this one Crowley Sweet Revenge. And I guess maybe the Cubs want to get a little revenge on the Colorado Rockies if they want to help out the Chicago White Sox. How about this, Crowley? The Colorado Rockies spending an entire week in Chicago, two days off, only one night game. I mean, these guys are going to be hitting the town like nobody's business. And I want to know, Crowley, we did not see Chris Bryant at all in the games on the south side. Is Chris Bryant even in town with the team? Did he even make the trip? Do you know? I have not heard that he has. And it, it, you know, you know, Dustin, it would be a story if he was because someone would ask him questions. They would bring something about the return. That's how it's always been. So my guess is he's not around. So, uh, you know, no Chris Bryant and the Rockies right now. They're, they're 62 and 81. They're in last place in the West. Um, six and four in their last 10, while the Cubs continue to be in third place, but really almost very similar record, 61 and 82, almost identical. And they're five and, and the five. The Rockies are terrible place. on the road, right? The Rockies are just awful on the road. Yeah, they're, they're bad on the road, and they're just a really streaky type of team. So, I mean, there's not anyone here – that really kind of scares you too much, but they, they got some guys that can hit, but it's, you know how it is with, with Colorado, how much of that is the, the sweet home cooking and how much of that is, is really these guys hitting, are they going to be able to do the same thing on the South side or the North side of Chicago? Absolutely. So game one Crowley will be Friday on 670, the score about a 1235 pregame and just found this out. David Haw will be doing the pre and the post on Friday over there on the Cubs radio broadcast. Marcus Stroman is up on the hill for the Cubs and he is due for a decent outing. Yeah, you know, uh, Stroman had that. He struggled uh, at the game that I was at the other day, which, you know, against the Giants, he gave up those four runs in the second inning on seven hits. Very short outing for, you know, it's just been, you know, the, the Jekyll and Hyde season of Marcus Stroman right now. You know, it, it, it's good start, bad start, good start, bad start. Uh, you just, you really just don't know what to expect, you know, against, you know, but that start before that, seven innings against St. Louis and gave up no runs. Start before that, he only went five innings, but he only gave up one run versus Toronto, which was a, a playoff caliber team. So you just you, you don't know what you're going to get here, and that's kind of the tricky thing with Stroman. You know, a lot of these guys have seen Marcus before. Charlie Blackman has a 300 average uh, against him. Um, you know, other than that, nobody's – you know, C.J. Crone has seen him 15 times, but he's only hitting 200. So – Hopefully, uh, you know, good Strowman shows up and, and he, he has a really good game. And like I said, it's just it's just the consistency that's really been kind of missing this year. Yeah, we do would like a little consistency. I'd like to see a good outing from him. I'm still not sure if I, I know he's not a one. I don't think he's a two. At best case, he's a three, but he's got to show me a little bit more before the season wraps up. You know, I, I think he can definitely be a solid two. Um, and and I, like I said, first year free agents at Wrigley, don't know why they struggle, but they do. I'm hoping that, you know, second year he, he builds off of everything that's happened. 
you know, fingers he talked crossed, a lot about, Crowley. fingers right. crossed. He talked, that's, that's he talked a lot about not liking the, uh, abbreviated spring training. And then, you know, he had some injury bumps at the beginning. He had a COVID spell. So it's just been kind of just one of those weird rough years. They are, um, Colorado's throwing German Marquez. Uh, I will never forgive him for hitting Chris Bryant in the head. If you remember that many, many years ago, he's really never been the same since Crowley. Yeah, you know, and, and how much of that, again, is pitching in Colorado. He, he against Arizona on 9-9, he gave up uh, nine runs on seven hits in four innings. Against Cincinnati, seven innings, three hits, two runs. And against the Mets, he went seven innings, and he gave up no runs. So with, with Marquez, it's, you know, you see what happens. Uh, he, can, he can be good. Franmil Reyes has only seen him five times, but he hits 400. So maybe uh, the Franmil gets somewhere. Ian Happ. Is 286 against him at seven at bats, but like I said, small sample size with most, most of these guys here. Yep, all afternoon games at Wrigley Crowley, 120 on Saturday as well. Wade Miley up there for the Cubs. Yeah, Wade Miley, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, with, with Wade, he's, <laughs> it's, it's it's no, it's you know, I'm just thinking to myself, you know, just what could have been. Think out loud, Crowley. Think out loud. If that guy could have stayed healthy all year, it's just the, the, the one thing that kind of goes through my mind. And I love going to Wade Smiley games. He is what the pitch clock was designed for. Like, he doesn't need a pitch clock. He's just a guy that I love to watch pitch. He's a thrower. Uh, yep, he's a thrower. You know, uh, a 9-11 versus San Francisco, five innings pitch, four hits, one earned run. Um, and against the Reds on 9-6, four innings pitch, you know, two earned runs. And before that, he didn't pitch since May. Or, I'm sorry, June 10th versus the Yankees. So, you know, he, he's been great. And it's, you know, do the Cubs make another run at him as far as free agency is concerned? Um, that I don't know. And that's where I'm kind of sitting here just kind of thinking about things. And, 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 you know, one of those guys that, like I said, I was just disappointed that, um, you know, we didn't get to see what he could do all year. Charlie Blackman has 21 at-bats against Smiley, 333 average. Uh Elias Diaz hits 429 and 14 at bat, so you might want to be careful on that one right there. Um, the Colorado is throwing Jose Ureña, who I always remember from the 2018 opening day. I was down in Miami. He used to pitch for the Marlins, and Ian Happ hit the first pitch out to start the season. Yeah, so that, that was always some great memories. And speaking of Ian Happ, those of you that play beat the streak, uh, in 11 at bats, Ian's hitting 455 against him. So. Keep that in mind. Might be a candidate then on Saturday. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that should be fun. It's supposed to have great weather this weekend, too. Game three, 120 start on Sunday. Javier Assad back out there taking the ball, looking for another decent outing after he was decent in game number one against the Mets earlier this week. I just got to say, Dustin, why couldn't they have thrown Stroman on Saturday on his bobblehead day? Like, come on! Can yeah, you, that would make that would make more sense, right? Who, who could we we could put uh, Mark Leiter in for a Friday game and, and push Stroh back? I would have been fine with. I'm that. sure Miley could go a day early, right? Right. Well, well no, because it would be uh, it would be Stroh's going Friday. So yeah, I'm saying, couldn't we have just flip flop those guys or no? Yeah, maybe. I, I would like to see. Well, Stroh would get an extra day's rest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I have no problem with that, but uh, you know, you got instead we we know it is what it is. So. Javier are you heading Assad. down at all this weekend, or are you heading north? I'm heading north. It's two 90-degree days, and this is probably the last of the uh, big hurrahs. So I'm going to be yes. uh, – I'll be going to a couple games uh, at the end of the season on the last homestand. I think I'm going like two or three games. So um, nice. I'll, I'll get it in, but I got I to gotta get me some uh, boating and some swimming in before it's all done. Yep, I don't blame you. All right, Crowley, it's prediction time. 
Last week, uh, I laid an egg. I said the Mets were going to sweep the Cubs. And I looked at the standings earlier today. I am giving up on a top five pick for the Cubs. So I am going to say two out of three at Wrigley. And, hey, why not? Sweep them while you're at it, Cubs. But I'll predict two out of three. I think that's a safe prediction, two out of three. The, the big question is uh, Javier Assad versus Ryan Feltner. That's the one I keep looking at. Neither team has seen each the, each, the opposing pitcher. So it's kind of one of those feel them out type of games. Fellner's two and eight with the six twelve ERA. Javier Assad is, you know, we've seen everything he's done. He's one and one, but he's got a two fifty three ERA. So this kid has just been dynamite every time he's been out there. So when I look at the pitching lineups, you know, you, you just never know if Udenia or Marquez has a good game in them. They they definitely have the potential. Well, um, Stroman's got to get it going. Stroman's got to take the ball first and be that leader on Friday afternoon. He's got to he's got to get this thing going in the right direction, kind of set the tone, if you will, for the weekend. I think regardless of what happens on Friday, that's the game that I'm questioning. Is is is, is that's the only thing that's holding me back from the sweep? Is but I feel like Marcus. I'm going to go sweep. I'm going to go sweep. I think All Marcus right, go kind of goes even go. odd. He kind of goes go, every other. So I'm going sweep, baby. Uh, the right. Cubs are going for two sweeps in a row, and 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 they are starting to build some momentum towards the end of the season. Well, that would be something to talk about come Monday afternoon if indeed the Cubs are able to do back-to-back sweeps. That's a wrap. This was Season 1, Episode 13. Sweet revenge for the Cubs as they swept the Mets out in New York, and now they welcome in the Colorado Rockies who leave 35th and Shields and come over to Clark and Addison and make sure you catch all the games on 670 The Score. Crowley, have a great weekend. Enjoy the weather up north. I will, and and for all you Cub fans out there, please continue to support the minor league Cubs. They're they're great. The, the announcers, you got BK and Max in South Bend, and Sam at Myrtle Beach, and then uh, yeah, just just let's kind of you know go Cubs at every single level. Follow us on Instagram at Twitter at Fly the W six seventy or on Facebook at Fly the W, and you can email us if you want Fly the W six seventy at gmail.com. and go Cubs, go Birds, and go South Bend.